Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Chapter number 20 this evening, we finished up the Ten Commandments last week. We ended there, man, number 17, verse number 17, thou shalt not covet. And we spent our time last week talking about the importance of that final, that last commandment, the one that normally gets overlooked in all of the other commandments, and yet how important it is for us. So verse uh, number 17 is the final commandment, and verse number 18, all the way down to verse number 26, that's our goal for the amount of work we're going to get done this evening. Verse 18, down to verse 26, is the response to those commandments. It actually runs all the way to chapter number 24, but you get a small glimpse of it right here in this passage, in these few verses. What is the proper response when someone tells you to do something? What is the proper response when someone tells you to do something? Well, if you're in the military, the proper response is, sir, yes, sir, right? If you are in a kingdom, And the king or the queen tell you to do something, the the proper response is, yes, sir, my lord, right? If it's your brother or your sister, the proper response is, you're not the boss of me, right? (laughs) If you're at school and it's your teacher and she tells you to do something, the response that, that normally sounds like, Please, can we have one more day to complete the assignment? Please, I promise I'll get my homework done tomorrow. Please, can I get extra credit? Right? What's the, what's the proper response when someone tells you to do something? Well, you, you really have to answer that question with it. With it depends on who's telling you, right? It depends on, is it, is it the captain of the army? Is it the king or queen of the kingdom? Is it my brother or sister? Is it my mom or dad? Is it the teacher? It, re- it really depends on who it is that is commanding you. It really depends on who it is that's telling you what to do. Well, in this passage, it's God. What's the proper response to what God tells us to do? What's the, what's the attitude or the spirit that God looks for in us? So God has given us the, the Ten Commandments, verse 1 down to verse 17, verse 18 now, the people's response. Look at verse number 18. And all the people saw the thundering and the lightning and the noise of the trumpet And the mountain smoking. Okay, put yourself in that position just for a moment. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. Wow, what an an interesting verse verse number 19 is. Man, they... They need a mediator. 
They need someone to mediate the conversation between God and them. They see God in his power. They see them in their weakness. They see God in his holiness. They see them in their unholiness. So we do not want to go ask God. We do not want to talk to God. We need someone else to talk to God for us. Verse number 20. Verse number 20 might be the most pivotal verse to understanding the proper response. So you need to get it. So verse 20. And Moses said unto the people, fear not, for God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. What a strange verse. Look at the verse again. Fear not, because God is coming to test you, to, to prove you for what reason? so that his fear may be before you, so that you might not sin. Don't be afraid, so that you might be afraid that you are not being afraid for the wrong reason. You see how that works? Don't be afraid, be afraid, so that you don't have to be afraid for the wrong reason. Look at verse number 21 then, and the people stood off, stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Man, what, what wonderful imagery is being given in this, in this entire passage. Verse 22, and the Lord said to Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. And another very important verse, if you want to understand our relationship with God. Sometimes people will say things like, well, I just want to see God work. Look, how do they see God? You have seen that I have talked with you. Isn't that interesting? It shouldn't actually read, you have heard that I talked with you. Shouldn't it actually read that way if the, the imagery is going to be correct? Sometimes if we want to see God, how do we see God? You see God by listening to God's word. That's what he's saying. Do you, want to, do you want to see me? Do you want to see my strength? Do you want to see my power? Do you want to see my love? Do you want to understand me? Listen to my word. That's what he's saying. Verse 23. You shall not make, uh, or you shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold, an altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and the sacrament and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. Man, how many of you remember Wednesday night, the, the name of God? When the name of God goes forward somewhere, God is always near, right? God's name reveals God's attributes to us. Verse 25, And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone... Thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. And neither shalt thou go up by the steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. What is the proper response to what God is saying to you and to me? It's two responses. We'll see both of them in this text. Two responses, just two points. First, Fear. Second, worship. First, fear. Proper 
holy, healthy fear. Second, worship. Proper, holy worship. Our Heavenly Father, use this passage to teach us great and wonderful things about you. Father, thank you for the way our hearts were already encouraged in this service just by way of song, by way of testimony. And Father, we ask that you would confirm it now with the truth of your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. amen. Thank you for saying maybe seated. Two things. First, the proper response to what the children of Israel had experienced. They heard, they saw, they experienced, they they. They smelt the smoke, they saw the mountain quake. And what was their reaction? Their reaction was twofold. It was first, the fear of God. Look at the reaction. If you want to outline it, outline verse 18, the reaction of the people. So they see the thunder, they, they, the, they, they hear the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpets, the mountain that is smoking. And this engages most, if not all, of their senses. They see something, they hear something, they, they can smell something by way of smelling, they can taste something, they touch something, the, the ground beneath them quakes, the mountain before them moves. So God is showing himself real and alive and strong and active and powerful. By the way, this has been the entire 20 chapters of the book of Exodus, has it not? God showing himself strong for his people. God flexing his muscles on their behalf. God doing signs. God showing wonders. Showing his people his wonderful power. And yet, man, so many times, just like the children of Israel, man, we go wandering off. We go wandering astray. And here are the people's reaction. They see this and they fear. Just a insider information. This is actually referred to as a theophany. That's a $5 word. You want to impress your friends tomorrow at work? Use that word right there. What did you learn in church? Well, we studied the theophany of Exodus chapter number 20. Wow, they'll think you're smart. Theophany simply means the appearance of God. It's a, it's a, it's a telltale in that there is smoke and fire, right? Smoke and fire. Generally in the Old Testament, wherever there's smoke and fire, God is showing up. Remember how the children of Israel were led out of Egypt and out through the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of what? Fire by night. And this is God leading his people. It's the same thing here. God is showing himself alive. God is declaring himself real. God descends on this mountain and has a conversation with Moses. And the mountain is quaking, but so are the people. The people are quaking as well. And there's a, there's a threefold response in verse number 18. Look at the end of the chapter, the end of the verse. They saw, they removed, and they stood afar off. So they, they saw what happened. They, they had this emotional response to it in that they removed themselves from it. And then they had a physical reaction so that they wanted space between where they were and where God was. By the way, this has happened earlier on. Remember, they, they were to stake around the, the mountain. They weren't to allow any animals to touch the mountain. They weren't to allow any children near the mountain. They weren't even they themselves supposed to go to the mountain while God descended down and God met with his people. And here they are in this reaction, the reaction of the people in verse number 18. Where God, this is interesting, 
where and when God descends on the mountain, their instinctive response is not to go, hey, God is over there. Let's all go see him. No, their instinctive response when God is on the mountain, their instinctive response is, hey, God is over there. Let's go over there. They're trying to remove from it. In fact, that they don't try. They actually do. Look at verse 18. When the people saw it, they removed and they stood afar off. So Sinai is trembling and the people's response is to take a step back. They're in, in essence saying God is there on the mountain. He's showing himself uh, real and powerful and alive and we are trembling, so they're taking a step backwards from the mountain. The reaction of the people, verse 19, the request of the people. They said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Have you ever, have you ever said something or thought something like, well, if we, man, if I could just interact with God the way that the people in the Bible were able to interact with God, well, then I would really know God to be real and I'd really know God to be big and I'd really know God to be strong and I'd really know God to be powerful. If I could only experience what the people in the Bible, are, are you sure you really want to experience that? Because here are the children of Israel experiencing a piece of that. And their response is that they're overwhelmed. They're overcome with fear. They say, Moses, you go talk to God because we don't want to talk to God. Because if we talk to God, we'll be dead. Right? Look, look at the end of the verse. But let not God speak with us, verse 19, lest we die. So the reaction, verse 18, the request, verse 19, look at verse 20, the reassurance from Moses. Moses said unto the people, fear not, for God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. This is certainly critical, this verse is certainly critical to understanding the response of the people, but this verse is actually critical to understanding our experience as a Christian. It's actually critical to understanding Christian growth, what it means to be a Christian, to live like a Christian. This, this is actually necessary information that you and I cannot rightly live out the Christian life if we do not understand exactly what is happening, not just in the heart of the people, but with their relationship to God from verse 20. Fear not, for God is come to prove you that his fear may be before you, your faces, and that ye not sin. Don't be afraid. Be afraid. God doesn't want you to be afraid so that you can be afraid. That's what he's saying. You don't be afraid. Be afraid. Because God doesn't want you to be afraid so that you can be afraid. It's interesting. So you might think, well, certainly the, the word fear, like, like the word love, is actually a different word. Maybe the word fear is translated differently in this text. Actually, it isn't. It's actually the same word. Yare. Yare is the word. It's the same word translated all throughout this entire passage. Same root functioning word. It's not a different word. It's not like agape or phileo. It doesn't mean 
different meanings, different implications, different kinds of love, different kinds of fear. It's not, it's not how it plays out for the word fear here. What, what the passage is actually teaching is that there must be a kind of fear that we ought not to have when we approach God. And there must be another kind of fear that we should never lack when we approach God. There should be a kind of fear that we should not have in approaching God. But there should be a kind of fear that we should never lack when we approach God. Okay, look. There should be a kind of fear that we have when we approach God. And there should be a kind of fear that we never lack when we approach God. And God does not want us approaching Him in fear like a threatened, abused, hurt, abandoned puppy afraid of coming near, tail tucked, ears bent sheepishly. This is how God wants us to fear him. God doesn't want that kind of fear. God doesn't want, God doesn't want fear as in, I'm afraid of what you will do because you're angry at me, so I am afraid. That's not the kind of fear God wants. God, is, God wants us to come close. God wants to be near. That's why he's on the mountain. That's why he's delivered them from Israel. That's why he's named them his own people. God wants us close. But watch, God does not want us careless. God wants us close, but God does not want us careless. There is a kind of fear that you ought to not lack when you approach God. But there is a kind of fear that you should not have when you are approaching God. And understanding what that fear is and its importance in your heart and in your life is critical to understanding how God wants us to grow. God wants you close, but God does not want you care less. God wants you to have reverence and awe and respect and honor and fear so that you understand that he means business when he gives you the commandments. But God does not want you to have a kind of fear that causes you to be afraid of going and confidently, boldly standing in front of the throne room of grace. So what does this kind of fear look like? Let's talk practically. What does this kind of fear look like? Well, fear actually motivates us all the time, doesn't it? Actually, a good, healthy fear can be a good thing, can it not? A good fear can be a good thing. It can be a proper motivation in your life. It's, it's why you drive more carefully when it is raining or snowing, or why you should drive more carefully when it rains or when you drive up to see the snow, right? You drive more carefully. Well, why do you drive more carefully? Because there's a certain measure of fear that you have in driving in the rain or in the snow. It, it's why you take your medicine after you visit the doctor. And the doctor says, if you don't take this medicine, then you are, you know, your life will be ended by, you know, three months from today. There's a certain kind of 
fear that motivates you to take your medicine, to do your exercises, to watch your diet. Why? Because I want to live with a proper sense of fear. There's a good fear. It changes the way you drive in the snow. It means that you take your medicine because you don't want to, uh, you, you want to prolong your life. It's, it's what causes you to eat your vegetables. You don't eat your vegetables, you won't grow. Ah, I'm afraid of being short for the rest of my life. I'm eating all the green beans I possibly can, right? It's why you take a, a gun safety class. Well, why? Because there's a good, healthy, Fear that properly motivates you to be careful, that allows you to be close but not careless. It allows you to be close but not careless. It's like approaching the Grand Canyon, right? And here at the Grand Canyon, man, these long, deep, Steep ravines, right? I remember we were driving, making our trek uh, across the country. We stop at the Grand Canyon. We all get out and we're like, this is going to be great. Let's all go see the Grand Canyon. And as we're moving toward the Grand Canyon, the kids are like, yes, this is going to be fantastic. And they're running closer and closer and closer to the edge. And Amanda is beginning to go, they're, they're really close, it's really far, it's really deep, it's a really long drop, and I'm going, run, faster, go quicker, right? Jump! No, I didn't say that. No, no, I said, hey, stop, don't go any farther. What? We just want to see over the edge. No, wait for me, right? Wait for me, I want to push you, I want to make sure you go all the way, all the way down. You approach the edge of the Grand Canyon like, Saw it! Right? You don't carelessly, casually go to the edge of the Grand Canyon. You, you move toward it. You move toward it carefully. Well, why? Why move carefully? Because there's, there's, a, there's a fear. A good, healthy sense of fear. It's the reason why you don't let your kids play in the middle of the 710. Same reason. Why? Because kids playing is a good thing. But kids playing in the middle of the 710 is a bad thing. So there's a healthy sense of fear. Stay away from the road. The road is bad. Bad road. Bad road. Your kids grow up. The road's bad, right? Like, no, you can walk across. No, road's bad. Mom said, walking road, er, er, truck, dead, right? There's a, there's a healthy sense of fear that allows you to come close. It allows you to enjoy, but it causes you to be careful. This is, this is, this is an understanding of, of how we approach God. That our God is a God who wants us close, but not careless. It, Lewis, Lewis says, God is not a tamed lion. What does he mean by that? What does he mean God is not a tamed lion? What does that mean? It means that God is not to just 
casually be approached. He's, he's not to be trifled with. God isn't, God isn't to just be treated as if he were just your buddy or if he was just your granddad or if he were just you know, the, the guy up the street or the, the Santa Claus who you wanted gifts from. This is, this is not God. You look at every interaction in the Bible where, where God is revealing himself, showing himself strong and big and powerful and mighty, and he's flexing his muscles. And what do you have happening from the people in the Bible? They're falling flat, holding their lips, covering their tongue. Look at Isaiah. He covers his tongue. I don't even want to. The seraphim surrounding the throne all day singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Job. God, I don't understand why this is happening to me. I want a real answer. God shows up. Job covers his mouth. I should not have even said a thing to you. Right? Sometimes people arrogantly go, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. And I'm going I'm to I'm look at God and say, why would you let that happen? You know what you're going to do when you get to heaven and you see God? You're going to fall flat on your face. Because God is not to be trifled with. God wants you close, yes, but God does not want us careless. This is the proper response to a big and holy God. The Lord says, fear and obey, right? It's what Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Your iPhone is not the beginning of wisdom, okay? Some of you think that. Your iPhone is the beginning of information. It's the beginning of knowledge, but it's not the beginning of, of wisdom. To actually know the, the way to go, the, the thing to do, the path to take, the way to live, who to marry, what college to go to, the, the career choice to make, the career change to have, the, the kids, the house, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do we come into the wisdom that we need in order to make the decisions that we have? The, the fear of the Lord is that. That's where it begins. It begins with a proper understanding of who our God is, that our God is not to be trifled with. So, so, so here is God, Exodus 20, here is God who is big, and here is God who is wise, and here is God who is powerful, and here is God who, is, who has flexed his muscles, he's delivered his children from Egypt, he's done great signs, he's done amazing wonders, and now he's commanded his children. Here are the ten commandments that I have for you. This is the way in which life goes best for you. And just so you know, I am not a God to be trifled with. Mountain quakes, lightning strikes, thunder, trumpets, and the whole work. And what's, what's the response from the people? It's, a, it's the fear of God. It's the fear of God that leads you to the beginning of wisdom. Okay, let me, let me see if I can help you understand it this way. It's the fear of God, proper response to God, it's the fear of God that leads us, begins to work in us to understand all that God has for us. Okay, think of just Exodus 20. Here, here's, here's the commandments. God is saying to these people who've never had freedom before. 400, or 400 years in, in Egypt, generations have come and gone. These folks have been set free. They're, they've been slaves their whole life. They don't know what freedom is. They don't know what a people are. They don't know what a nation does. They don't have these things. And God says, here it is. I delivered you. I set you free. Now, here's 
what you need to do in order to be the people that I bless. And then the beginning, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord helps you take what God has said and then apply it to your living. It's, it's, it's what works it down into your life. It's, it's what you ring over and over and over. It's like massaging it in over and over and over. Say, this is what this means. What does it mean? Why does God say don't covet? That seems like a silly thing for God to be concerned about. But then you work that in. And then what do you get? You get to Paul in the New Testament. Covetousness is idolatry. Oh, so that's what God meant. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why does God give wisdom in this sense here in Exodus 20? God is giving wisdom so that his people might know the best way to live because God knows best on how our lives should go. And if we want to have our lives go the best way with God, we need a sense of fear, a healthy fear. Look here, a healthy fear leads to a happy life. A healthy fear leads to a happy life. The sense of running around saying, well, I'm never going to be afraid. I'm never going to fear. There's nothing to fear. That leads to reckless life. A healthy sense of fear. Approaching something as big as the Grand Canyon. Let's walk carefully. Grab hands. Okay. okay, let's scoot close. Not, not too close, because if you go, I'm holding on to you, then you're going to pull me off. Then I'm going to take your sister with you, right? Healthy sense of fear. A healthy sense of fear leads to a happy life. That's what God's saying. Proper response. Two responses. First, fear of God. Second, we spend all of our time on that one, but, but, but give, me, give me five minutes to the worship of God. Verse 20, um, verse 22 down to verse 26. It's, it's really what Bible scholars call the covenant code. It rolls out in chapter 23, chapter 24. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. But now, this is, this is actually the first significant set of instruction to God's people for how they are to apply all these commandments to their worship. Now, worship is a, is a, is a big thing for them and even for us. Okay. Worship is a proper, look here, worship is... A proper response to a living God. We don't want to talk about worship in that way. When we talk about worship, you know what we primarily mean? We primarily mean singing. How, well, how was the worship today? Well, the worship was lively today, right? That's what we mean. Oh, the worship was good today. What do we mean when we say things like that? Well, what we mean is we mean the singing was good. But it's actually singing is a part of worship, it's a piece of worship. Singing is a form of worship, but singing alone isn't worship. Worship is a proper response to a holy God. So God desires for us to worship him. God creates us to worship him. God wants for us to worship him. And then look here, this is really important. God makes a way for us to worship him that is the proper, holy way of which he desires to be worshipped. It rolls out in this text like this. Watch what happens. You shall not make me, or, or, or verse 22, 
Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. The altar of the earth thou shalt make. So he says, when you build your, when you build your altar, when you bring your sacrifices, I don't want this big elaborate structure. That's the next verse. If you're going to add stones to it, don't, don't use stones that are all hewn out. Don't get all caught up in the architect of it. Why? Because then you're going to find yourself worshiping the architect of the altar and you're going to miss the point that the altar is actually for me and I'm not there. We talked about that this morning. We, we worship a person. The object of our faith is a person and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't worship a thing. We don't worship a place. We don't worship an item made with man's hands. We worship a living, true God who sits in the heavens above and he moves and acts in our hearts and lives. This is who we worship. And this God, look, this God desires for us to worship him in a certain way. Well, you know, I do the whole church thing, but I just don't like the way they worship there. You ever heard somebody say that before? How many of you ever heard somebody say something like that? If you haven't, I'll send you a couple emails so you can, you can catch up on it. You see, this, that's the wrong understanding of worship. Worship is not for you. Worship is for God. It's for Him. And because worship is for Him, because He is the only one worthy of worship, then He is the one who gets to set the instructions for how He is worshipped. Do you see how that works? So because it's Him that we worship, and because worship is for Him, and because He created us in order to worship Him, then He is the one who then says, I want to be worshipped, but watch. I have a way that I want to be worshipped. That's what he's saying. That there's a way in which when you approach me, this is the right way to do it. So how does it look for them? Well, when you build an altar, build it out of stone. Don't put all kinds of beautiful stuff. Don't, don't get hung up on the architect of it because that's not what's important. So this, these items are not where I am. These, this, is, this, is why we, this is why we don't worship a cross. When we're thankful for the cross and the preaching of the cross is foolishness to all those that do not believe, but to us that are saved, the cross, man, we understand that to be the power of God, but we don't worship two pieces of wood. We worship a savior. That's why we don't worship a manger. A manger is a wonderful thing that reminds us about how God descended, became flesh, was born for us of the Virgin Mary. This is a wonderful thing, but we do not worship a manger. We worship Jesus Christ who is living and ever-present and sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for us even right now. That's why we don't worship at the garden tomb. The tomb is great and I'm glad it was empty and there's a wonderful celebration and great truths that we learn about the tomb. But we do not worship any of these objects. We worship the person that all of these objects point us toward. They say the, the manger was about Christ and the cross was about Christ and the empty tomb was about Christ. It's all about Christ. You see, this is what's important to understand. So God not only 
desires worship. God not only creates us for worship, but God then says, when you worship me, there's a way in which I want to be worshipped. And he lays out for them the, the how of that. That is actually the good news about worship. Worship is God's way. And the good news is, God makes the way. Worship is God's way, and God makes the way. He says, you want to worship me? Here's how you worship me. You want to worship me? Here's how you worship me. And then he lays out the instructions for it. This wonderful things. We'll take the next few weeks and look at exactly how that is for us. But, but hear me. What does God think about your worship? That's where I want to end tonight. What, what does God think about your worship? It's good for us to be sincere. It's good for us to be emotionally moved. It's good for us to have experiences. But God's experience of worship is more important than your experience of worship. See, watch. How God views your worship is more important than how you view your worship. Well, I just really feel like I got my worship on today. Hands were waving, right? And don't email me the verses about people who raised their hands when they worshiped. I know, we'll cover it. But you see how we cheapen the idea of worship and we make it about, we make it about us. This, this happens on both ends of the spectrum. We make it about us. You know, worship isn't about you. Worship isn't about me. Worship is for God. And because worship is for God, because God wants us to worship, God created us to worship, then God has a way in which he desires for us to be worshipped, in which he desires for us to worship him. So here's the question. I'm not asking you what you think about worship. I'm asking you, what does God think about your worship? You see, here's, here's why this is scary. Because the person in front or behind you they heard your singing, but God saw your heart. You see that? The, the person in front or behind you heard your singing, but God saw your heart. So if the, if the act of worship, whether it was singing or whether it was giving or even whether it was preaching or teaching, if that act of worship was for eye service as men pleasers, well then, you have your reward. But if that act of worship was holy to the Lord, Lord, this, this is your word. This is your singing. This is your voice. This is your money. Now, Lord, you, this is for you. Well, then there, there is something that can never be lost. Because only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else, you know what it is? Wood, 
hay, stubble. Everything else is wood, hay, and stubble. Everything else goes into the fire, it's burnt up. But what's done for Christ, well now that, gold, silver, precious stones. So what does God think about your worship? Proper response to God should be two things. First, fear of God. Second, the worship of God.